Distance Daddies. Welcome back to the 10th episode of Distance Daddies. On today's episode, we talk with Steve Magnus, a sports scientist, author, and former assistant coach of the Nike Oregon Project and University of Houston. We discuss his new book, Do Hard Things, and how to incorporate those mental skills to running and his thoughts on various training topics and sports psychology. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at distance underscore daddies. And with that, let's get into it. On today's episode, we are joined by Steve Magnus, a sports scientist, author of books such as Peak Performance, The Science of Running, and most recently, Do Hard Things, as well as the former assistant coach of the Nike Oregon Project and University of Houston track and cross-country programs. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really excited to talk to you guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, I guess first, why don't we just go into your new book, Do Hard Things. Uh, so what, I guess, inspired that initially? Yeah, so I think it, it comes from my long running background, which is if you look at running, what is it except, you know, from a mental standpoint, it's you alone out on the track or cross-country course or road with like a barrage of feelings and discomfort and pain and fatigue all coming at you. And then you have these like negative thoughts that are pulling you towards slowing down or quitting or finding a hole to step in. And it's really about like wrestling with that that decision point, that decision moment. And how do you navigate through those difficult things to um, be able to be tough or resilient or gritty or whatever you want to call it? So I've all I've long thought about this. Um and it's always been something that I'd want to kind of explore and write about. But I think in recent years, I realized that it's not that doesn't just apply to running. It applies to every, you know, most things in life is whenever we go through a difficult challenge, we're often pulled towards like avoiding it. And like the doubts and insecurities come up in our head. And it's it's like learning how to navigate that on a broader scale, both in sport and both in our life. So it's just kind of a nice time to dive deep and explore that topic. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Yeah. And I know you kind of ended up um, in the book basing it on where you have these four pillars that you recommend for people to to do what you were just talking about. Um, I guess, can you just kind of briefly touch on each of those pillars and and what those mean? Yeah, sure. So you've always got to figure out some fancy way to organize a book. So I went with pillars, but essentially the four of them, what they mean is the first one is I call it ditch the facade, embrace reality, which, you know, basically means that when we think of toughness, we often think of like the external, like you act tough, you come around with bravado and you have this confidence. But what really matters is the internal. So it's not about putting on the facade. It's about 
facing the reality of the challenge that is before you. And if you can do that with a secure sense of self, uh, kind of quiet inner confidence, and just this knowledge of knowing what you're capable of, you're going to be able to face it much better than if you go in with like this false sense of security or this like faking it till you make it. And the second pillar is, I call it, listen to your body, which is often when we think of going through challenging times, we're told to like ignore our feelings, to push away the pain that there's like, you know, no showing emotion or no crying in baseball, whatever, you know, popular reference you want to use. When the reality is our feelings and our self-talk, like they're information. So we feel that way for a reason. And being tough isn't just like listening to your feelings and saying, okay, yes, I'm going to go with you. It's being able to sort through what is, you know, what you should pay attention to and what you should let kind of slide on by. The example I like to give that kind of illustrates this is the one athletes have to, you know, learn early on, which is distinguishing pain that means maybe fatigue or tiredness that you can kind of work through versus pain that signals, hey, this might be a potential injury and I'm much better off stopping. Expert, you know, runners, athletes can kind of distinguish that and know when that pain is leading towards pain or towards injury. That's what it means to listen to your body. Mm-hmm. And then the, the third pillar is um, respond instead of react which essentially means that generally when we go through, again, tough times or feel discomfort, our instinct, our brain wants to protect us. So it's all about safety. And often that that protection is, what's the quickest way we can get out of this situation? Which is reacting. You go for the easy door, the easy choice. But what you see on, on people who display you know toughness is that they're able to respond, which is essentially creating the space to navigate that situation instead of defaulting towards the easy thing. And then the last pillar, I I called it transcend discomfort, which is much of the book is related on, you know, individually doing difficult things. But it's really about the environment and our support group and our support around us that allows us to express um, our resilience and our grit and allows us to you know, perform to our capabilities. So if you can create an environment that you know, gives you a sense of security, that supports you, that makes you feel like you belong and have a voice and a choice and can make progress in what you do, what happens is people are much more willing to take you know, appropriate risks to be persistent. And you see this in the workplace all the time. You know, If your boss micromanages you to death, chances are you're not going to be motivated, even if you're a highly motivated person. Why? Because when you're micromanaged, you feel controlled and constricted and you feel like you have no freedom to, to grow. So even mm. though you might be the like most motivated, toughest person in the world, your environment is sending you signals to like, hey, give up. What's the point? So really creating that environment around you uh, allows you to kind of transcend that discomfort. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I know there's like some gray area with this, but just kind of going off of, of what those, 
those two examples you kind of gave us, um, I feel like in the past I've had teammates that would cut a workout short because they'd say like, oh, I was, I kind of felt I was starting to overextend and didn't want to avoid injury, like you said, which, which is oftentimes a great thing to do. But how do we kind of know when we're lying to ourselves in that area, you know, and not just taking the easy way out in that instance and being like, oh, I'm not really feeling like it. So I'm just going to tell everybody I'm avoiding injury. Like, is that just kind of a self-reflection thing afterwards? And how do you, if if there's someone who, who is doing that right now that's listening, what would you recommend for them to work on that? Yeah, so I, th- I think that's a great piece. And this is really important is there's nuance in all of this. And I think the key there is, you know, if you're kind of lying to yourself or not, mm-hmm. you know, if you're starting down that path of going with the rationalizations, the justifications, right? And yeah. if you're going down that path, then what I would say is like, what do you need to do? You need to step back and reflect and say, well, why am I defaulting towards this path going down this like justifying, you know, cutting it short maybe. And often it's because you know, you're in this kind of like self-protective self-preservation mode where Mm -hmm. you don't want to take the risk because what if you fail and what if you're not good enough and like all of those kind of doubts. And if that's the case, that's fine. But that gives you something to work on where you say, okay, well, why do I, why am I going into self-protection mode? I think the other part of it is, you know, this is where having coaches or teammates hold you accountable is important because they know and often can see, you know, whether something is kind of real or can suss it out to see if it's real or not, Mm -hmm. because they're this third party per, you know, have a perspective on things. And if you, you know, you have a good coach, they're often like, no, you should call it for a day. You look, you know, you're, you're maybe your running form is a little bit off. Like you don't look normal like you. Like often there's those indicators that that kind of can show if, you know, it's just a psychological thing or maybe a physical thing. Yeah. Or even if you look a little flat or tired or what have you and don't have that pop or bounce in your stride that you normally do. So that, again, is somewhere where I think a, a third party really can help you navigate that. Gotcha. That makes sense. And then I know you kind of said that the pillars was a way to organize the book like in a neat fashion. Um, is there one, if you had to pick that you would say is more important than the others, or do you think they're all pretty equally important? Yeah, I don't know. I'd probably, I'd probably change my mind on different days. Um, I think it all matters, but I really do think that that last pillar, which is like transcending discomfort, like the environment matters more than we realize. Mm -hmm. Um, my favorite study that I wrote about in the book that really got this across is, there was uh, a, a group of psychologists that looked at NBA coaches and NBA players for like years. And what they did is they classified the coaches, you know, based on their coaching style. Mm-hmm. And at the extreme, you know, on, on the extreme of one end was what they called abusive coaches, which were essentially the coaches who like couldn't stop yelling and screaming and like trying to punish their players. Right. That was their style almost like the old school Bobby Knight style, uh-huh. right? And they track, well, what happened when a player joined this team? You know, what happened to his performance? And they found that, you know, when a player joined a coach who had this abusive style, their performance declined, number one. And then their um, 
number of aggressive or technical fouls went up, which is a bad thing, right? But most interestingly, is that effect lasted for the rest of the player's career, even when they moved on to another team and had like a different coach who maybe was like more supportive. So, so to me, again, that was a, like a wonderful study at the highest of, uh, of highs in terms of professional athletes that shows that, you know, our environment, the coaches around us, the teammates, whatever have you, they go a long way towards like impacting, you know, how we'll play, how we'll perform and whether we perform up to our best or, you know, uh, freak out and, you know, yell and scream at the refs and get technical fouls. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> um, and I know, like, your book was very well researched, like like you just mentioned, one of those studies. Um, I feel like I'm a physical therapist, and in school, they kind of hammered into us. Um, when you're looking at research, you can go and find whatever you're looking for, basically, nowadays, just because there's so much research. Um, and especially like you were talking about these old school coaches, like, what would you say to somebody? Cause my favorite part of your book, basically, or one of the things I like most about it was that you basically just go and debunk all of these old kind of myths. Um, but what would you say to somebody who like does that back to you and is like, well, there's these other sides that I can prove like that this old school kind of toughness is, is true. Um, have you got that argument at all? And like, what would your response be? Yeah, I have. And, and here's what I would say is, is there's a couple different things. Um, often these old school coaches succeeded in spite of their, you know, maybe views on discipline, authoritarian dictatorship control. And Mm. Bobby Knight's a great example I give. Yeah. Bobby Knight was a genius at basketball and plays and defense. And you talk to anyone in basketball and that's why he succeeded. Mm-hmm. Like he was a genius at, at the game of basketball, but people look over here and they say, well, look at how he treated his players. Well, the genius at basketball, like over, like gave him enough wiggle room where he could still succeed even though he was kind of, you know, a dick and, you know, to whatever his players and was just horrible to them. Yeah, for sure. So with good coaches, what we see or with successful coaches is often what you see is about 70 to 80 percent of what they do is right. But then 20 to 30 percent is is often wrong. So often what happens is we hold on to that 20 to 30 percent thinking this is the key when it's often the thing that like, you know, the Bobby Knight screaming at players where they they did it. They did it wrong and they got away with it. The other the other thing that I like to say is I agree, like you could find research for everything, but the magic happens when you see the research align with it. The top athletes or top performers, the people with skin in the game align with it. And then you see the historical trends. Mm -hmm. And when those things align, it generally means you're on the right side. So we've talked about, well, there's all this research that shows that old school coaches often fail. Well, let's look at, you know, some of the top coaches and the progression of them in in history. And I'll stick with basketball for that example, even though running is easier. But for basketball, like we had Bobby Knight, right? Well, look at the progression now. We have coaches like, you know, Steve Kerr. 
who is, you know, a very much a kind of autonomy supportive coach. You often have coaches who have that old school style who don't last very long at their teams, right? And you've seen kind of this shift um, away from, again, to use the just the kind of Bobby Knight style to more of the, you know, support of even the John Wooden style. And you're seeing this even in sports that um, that often have this traditional model of of toughness, right? We have Pete Carroll in the NFL or Sean McVay or Cliff Kingsbury, like all having success and have more of kind of like a more, you know, uh, supportive style versus like the old school style. So once you start seeing like both the practice and the research like aligning at the highest level, that kind of gives me an indication that like, yeah, these old coaches, maybe they were good at X, Y and Z. But we should leave behind some of their practices that, you know, don't work very well. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure you looked at probably three times as many articles that are actually made it into the book and were able to figure out like what matched up with that history, like you were talking about most accurately. So um, I think Kyle has a question next. Yeah. In your book, you touched on kind of that those who survive will thrive and those who don't are more likely to find something easier to do. You connected that with the Navy SEALs and their hell week. Um, so I was wondering just, do you think there's a role for that in terms of college sports, especially running, or do you think that's kind of should be reserved more for something like the military where you're under uh, kind of higher stress, more, uh, I guess, dire consequences. Um, so I guess, yeah, just for example, um, I know some college programs, uh, definitely go towards like higher mileage. Um, so let's say like hundred plus mile weeks, uh, but not everybody's able to sustain that. So it kind of feels like similar to that. Those who survive will thrive and those who don't find something easier to do. So just wanted to know what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, that's a great question, Kyle. And I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head with the framing of it is that we often look to the military for this kind of sink or swim model. But as you pointed out, the military is literally can be life or death. So like we need to it's it's often like we need to see if you can survive so that we can then train you up. Um, if you can't, like this could lead to your death or the death of your teammates. So the stakes are much higher. I think in sport, we make that mistake of looking at the military and neglecting that that was their sorting mechanism and not their development mechanism. And when we look at sport, especially running, even at the college level, what's our goal to develop people and develop them to their own capabilities, like the best that they can be? And by definition, that means like we have to have some sort of individualization to it. So it's not against like, you know, high mileage can be great for some people. I ran a lot of miles, but for others, it can leave them utterly broken and injured. Well, if we're worried about the development of each person, then to me, it's very clear that we shouldn't have a program that just is one size fits all and says, hey, everyone does 100 miles a week and we'll see who survives because we're failing people. And the other part of it that I think is really important is every sport is a game of talent and development. 
and we don't know. I can't predict. You know, if you came in and I was coaching college, if you came in as a freshman, you could have run, I don't know, 410 for the mile or 420. And I might say, oh, the 410 guy's going to be better. But that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so often people develop at different rates and sometimes it takes people time. So to me, you know, when we have all sorts of examples, especially on the professional side of people who developed late and did crazy things. And we have examples of people succeeding even at the highest level off high mileage and low mileage and different training things. So to me, it's about if your job is to develop people and get the most out of them in your, you know, high school, college, whatever it is, then to me, it's I want to keep as many talented people I can have and then hopefully match up, you know, the training with their individual physiology and biomechanics and whatever have you mm-hmm. so that they can potentially maximize that. And that's where I think the 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 sink or swim, throw everyone against the wall, kind of fails people. And it like pushes people out who who knows, like in two, three, four years, they could make a huge jump and become a superstar if you just, you know, gave them the the tools and training they needed. Yeah, definitely. Do you worry at all about like some of these college coaches that also coach pros, um, like say like Schumacher, like Wetmore, um, using college as like the sorting mechanism for their eventual pros at all? Like, does that ever cross your mind? Yeah, I, it it does. And I think that that can be again, a dangerous path for a number of different reasons because college, well, yes, we all or many aspire to be professionals. Like Mm. that's not the sole point of going to college and competing. And I think, you know, if we're only using this as a sorting mechanism, we're failing people um, over the development long haul and we're not often keeping people in the game. So I think I think it's one of those things where, you know, for instance, I'll use Schumacher now since he's the new person at Oregon, Oregon, is I can see a high school recruit being like, great, I'm going to go to Oregon because like I have a chance to like train with the best and then have a leg up for you know going professionally yeah which is awesome but also think about it from the coaches or the business standpoint is now this coach has well i've got four years to find out if this kid can make it or not Mm -hmm. and i'm gonna throw him against the wall and see if he can make it and then furthermore i think the other thing that people don't think about but you know i'm not even sure if i should say this but whatever we'll go for it is um you're also in a situation where you're you you lowered the you you've given away your kind of bargaining power because if you spent four years adapting to let's say a Schumacher program and then he essentially because he is paid by Nike and the professional organization he then gets to decide if you go pro for Nike they can lowball you an offer compared to if you went to I don't know uh, Stanford. And you weren't coached by him for four years and you're going to go to a new coach anyways. So now you have Adidas, Nike, you know, uh, Hoka on all of them kind of competing and everyone's at a level playing field. And you'll just be like, I'll take the best offer for the best situation versus if you just went to, you know, Oregon and you're like, well, this is kind of the best situation because I already have the coach. I've improved under him. I like him. 
but like you know nike can now use this to the advantage and lowball the crap out of me um, because they know i'll probably take this over switching everything where i don't know if i'll be successful or not yeah yeah definitely and i feel like i mean you've kind of spoken about this in the past with with organ project when you're in a certain environment and even this ties back to the book and and putting yourself in in the right environments but how you're kind of sometimes blind to to things that maybe 10 years down the line you'll look back on and be like oh that was red flag so i feel like an athlete in that situation might be blind to to better opportunities that are are available to them somewhere else it, it, exactly often and 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 i saw this all the time especially in the coaching is like you know um when you're young you don't have the perspective and understand the sport or that side of the sport maybe as well as you would years later. And of course you don't, like you don't have the experience, so you shouldn't understand it as well. But often you can have that where it's like taken advantage of um, by athletes, coaches, agents, whatever have you. So I often think about that on the college side is, you know, um, sometimes you don't know what you're getting into and and that can be um, can be a tough time. Um, I just want to ask real quick, you know, you talk about having negative thoughts and you know how you got to deal with them in your book. Um, what kind of mental techniques do you see in elite runners that they use in their training to kind of, you know, work through all that? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's interesting, you know, when I was talking to s some elite runners, um, some great marathoners, it's talking to them about like negative thoughts and, you know, the topic came up like, well, do you ever think about quitting? And every single one of them said yes. Every single one was like, yeah, in the middle of the marathon, like I think about, you know, stopping at the aid station or like stepping on the curb and like, you know, getting out of this race or what have you. So it's we all have those negative thoughts and the strategies are wide and varied. And I cover a lot in the book, but a couple that are really important, I think, and that also have some research behind them is number one is change how you're talking to yourself is there's some fascinating work that shows that if you switch from first person to second or third person, so instead of saying like, I've got this, like, you know, whatever, you change it to say like, come on, Steve, or like, get your shit together, Steve, whatever it is you wanna say. And what, what happens is like, because you've changed that verbiage, your mind almost interprets it differently and says, hey, wait a minute, I'm used to like talking to myself in first person, like what's this other voice? And you can almost like dislodge that negativity a little bit. The same thing happens when you you switch from talking like with your inner voice to outer voice. So saying things out loud. So this sounds a little bit weird, but it's the same effect where if you say it out loud, your brain kind of interprets it as like, hey, like, why is what's that voice? Where'd that come from? It's almost like a friend giving you advice. And you can use this a lot. I, and I've seen athletes uh, use this a lot especially in cross country or longer races with their teammates, right? When you pass a teammate, you say something to them every once in a while, which can often then boost you. You know, you're passing your teammate. You say like, come on, Johnny, like keep going, follow me along. And all of a sudden you feel like you get a little boost from that. Well, it's the same kind of effect is you're kind of dislodging yourself from that negativity. The other thing that, that works really well for your inner voice is often we kind of get stuck and we get stuck in this kind of this negative spiral so again you how do you dislodge it 
it's that inner voice plus that emotions that come with it, like that pain, that fatigue, that like whatever anxiety, whatever comes with that kind of freak out moment is shifting your attention dramatically. So if you're paying attention to, I don't know, your breath while you're running, like go focus your attention on, you know, your competitor, you know, 50 meters in the, in front of you, or look to the sidelines and try and focus on what your coach is, is telling you like elite runners. And there's some research behind this. Elite runners are very good at, at switching their attention between things when they need to generally amateur amateurs get stuck. Like we feel the pain and then we can't shift our attention away from it. It's the only thing we can think about. Mm. Yeah. Is this like the zooming in, zooming out thing you, you talk about in the book? Yeah, exactly. That's how I kind of conceptualize it is like, you know, we can either go very broad or very narrow and each one has its kind of different benefits. You know, when we're very, very narrow and we're zoomed in, we're essentially like incredibly focused. Our, our vision, our attention is tunnel is kind of tunnel vision, which can help. But that can also mean that we like feel, experience the pain, discomfort to like an an nth degree, like way more because we're so locked in on the experience. So zooming out on the opposite hand is we might not feel the things as much because like we're taking in all sorts of uh, stimuli from the environment. So we're processing it all, but we might lose a little bit of that focus. So to me, it's like, figuring out, you know, in that moment is like going almost the opposite direction is like shifting your attention, zooming in, zooming out to see what best allows you to handle the, uh, the difficult moment. Yeah. Was there anything in the, in the research, um, about like, in terms of shifting from zooming into zooming out, is it kind of like you were talking about when you experience discomfort that you make that switch or is it like, every 5k during a marathon or something like that, like any guidance at all? Yeah. So what I would say is when you feel discomfort or like use your emotions to guide you. So when you feel that discomfort is generally a, 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 a sign that you could, you should switch. And then also when your motivation starts to wane. Okay. And what I mean by that is like those, especially like what you pay attention to gets valued. So if my motivation is starting to drop, I can shift my attention to maybe like the next making it to the next mile marker or making it to the next turn or catching the person ahead of me or whatever have you. And that shifting of attention will like re-kick in my motivation because it's like, oh, yeah, we have something that's important and a goal in this uh, right now to pay attention to versus mm -hmm. maybe the big you know, marathon, which we can't think about because it's so, it's like so long to process at once. So often like shifting your attention to something that, you know, you can process can, can help in those moments. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and can, how do you use like the stereotypical view of mental toughness? Do you think it has changed for the better? Like, can people use failure and take that as like better feedback now? Yeah, I think it has, because I think what happened is like the the stereotypical view kind of told us to avoid failure <laughs> and like that failure was a negative thing and that it that failure almost reflects on our character. Like if we fail, it's like we are a failure, not that I failed at running this race or what have you. And I think that created kind of a avoidance mindset where we're like, oh, let's avoid this horrible thing. 
But I think now what you're seeing more and more is people realize like failure is just part of the process and that if we can use it to learn from it and to adapt and grow and get better, then it can be a very positive part of the process. So to me, like the old school method is like, oh, I'm going to try and avoid failure or freak out whenever failure happens. And the new school model is like, yeah, failure still sucks, but like, let's figure out how to learn from it. And more importantly, like, get over it quickly and get back to the work. I think where we often, you know, go wrong is we fail at something and then we linger in that like negative emotion and it like spirals. And then it becomes this like thing that our, our, our brain says like, oh, I don't want to experience that. Let's avoid it. And like what you see really good athletes are is win or lose you know, they're going to get back to it. Actually, I remember a a long time ago, but when I was coaching Sarah Hall, she kind of had this breakthrough with her mindset when she went over to Ethiopia and was training and she ran that. She just happened to run this race with one of these, uh, one of these Ethiopian competitors and Sarah beat the Ethiopian. The Ethiopian ran really, really poorly. And, you know, she's talking to her after the race, Sarah is, and, the Ethiopian girl is like, next time I will set a world record. And Sarah's sitting there like, I just beat you. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) But there was just this, like, almost like this instant move on from like, okay, that race didn't go well. Like, you know, I'm going to learn from it, but then I'm just going to shift my focus and move on to the next one. And I think that that is such an important lesson because Americans typically will linger on that loss and be like, oh, my gosh, am I not in shape anymore? Like, what's wrong with me? Do I need to completely change the training? And the Ethiopian athlete is just like, next time, world record, let's go. And I think there's something, you know, simple but brilliant about that mindset. Yeah, Yeah. I think that almost goes back to like the kind of embracing the reality pillar you have to where like the Ethiopian in that case, I mean, you could argue she's not embracing reality by saying she's going to do the world record next time, but kind of on the other end, she knows her training is much better than what she just raced. So she's able to just bounce back and keep going the next day. Exactly. I think that's the key. And that's the takeaway. It's not necessarily like, oh, we need to think we're going to all set world records, but it's that that runner knew that she'd been training for months and months and her training had been going very well. So it's more likely, you know, Hey, I'm fit. It just wasn't my day. Like, let's find another Avenue where I can express that. And I think that's the lesson for all of us is like, how do we get, if our training has gone well and we've been putting in the work, like, you know, we're going to have bad days. How do we get beyond them fast and, you know, get on to where we can, um, you know, have another shot. Yeah. I guess also just going off that David Goggins famously has that 40% rule where when you think you're done, you're only at your 40% mark and still have 60% to go. I just was wondering based on that and just your book, do you think that's kind of like BS or where's your like stance on it? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we always have more in the tank when we think we're done. That's like just I mean, there's it's it's physiology like it's um, there's a lot of theories behind this, but essentially, you know, the brain protects us. So when we're pushing the bounds of fatigue. You know, 
we're going to have more in the tank because our brain doesn't want us to get hurt or die, you know, essentially. Right. We don't want to push until like we can't push anymore. And then our, our heart explodes or whatever happens. So of course, like our brain is trying to protect us, is trying to slow us down where I think the 40% rule is off is that with training, I would say like, you know, when elite athletes or not even elite, when experienced athletes think they're done, they probably have, you know, maybe 5% left in the tank, right? Because they've been there enough. They know how to get, you know, 90% out of themselves every single time almost. It's just that final few percent, which tells us like, okay, I have more in here. How do I navigate to get to the other side of this? Now, if you're, you know, I, I don't know for you guys, but um, not too long ago, I, I got injured and then had to take a long time off. And then I started training again. And that first workout back, yeah, like my mind was probably screaming me at 40%. And I still had a ton in the tank left. But it just, it, 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 my mind was screaming at me because I hadn't been in that spot for a while because I was injured. Yeah. But, you know, after a couple weeks of training, you know, it wasn't a big deal. I was like, oh, yeah, this is how you do this. Like, <laughs> I, I'm okay. Like, I know how to handle this. And it's just like it comes back to you. So I think, you know, the, the, to some degree that might be true. But, like, I think really is that shifts way in the other direction with training and experience, which tells me that, like, we need to spend more time, like, experiencing the discomfort so that we know where our kind of uh, end point is. Yeah. You also talked about uh, in your book, the breaking the four minute barrier for the mile uh, by an American. And then 50 years later, like seven people racing, trying to break that as well. Um, and I'm sure just from like a sports scientist background, uh, there's was a huge uh, just improvement in sports science, shoe technology or whatever through that 50 years. But just in these last couple of years, uh, just seeing all these high school runners like breaking four minutes. Uh, what do you think that, I guess, is there the same, I guess, mindset from back then? Or do you think it's just uh, a little bit different that now people just, it's completely psychological and no kind of physiological benefit that there's just so many high schoolers breaking this that everyone just is able to do it now, now that they have, don't have that mental barrier? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there's a lot of different things that come into this is that um, I think there is a psychological component of the more people who do it, the easier it is to kind of conceptualize this. I mean, I remember I didn't break four minutes, but I ran 401. And I remember, you know, what really conceptualized the, uh, that for me is, well, I'll give you the, the story is when I was a freshman in high school, I ran 422. And I remember my coach coming to me and say, Hey, Steve, I think you might have a shot at a four minute mile. And I was like, I don't know what the hell that means. And he was like, cause I was a freshman, I was dumb. And he was, he was like, well, you know, Jim Ryan did it. Well, I'm old, but this was like 1999 or 2000 or something like that. And, you know, I'm sitting there like Jim Ryan did it in 1960, something like who is this guy? You know, there was no comparison, but then when Alan Webb did it and in 2001 then i was like oh well here's someone who's done it like this is possible like alan webb crushed it and i think you started to see like it being possible 
I think in recent years, what you're seeing is a little bit of that as well. But I think you're also seeing a couple of other really important things is that uh, one coaching like coaches on average are better because there's so much information out there. You know, even during my era 20 years ago in, in high school is you'd have some really good coaches. But then you had a lot of coaches who were like, you know, the football coach who was like, oh, I just, you know, got assigned cross country because, you know, they needed someone to do it. But now you have so much information through books, through Internet, et cetera, where it's it's very easy to go from bad coach to pretty good coach. Still hard to go to like great excellent, but it's easier to make that jump. So I think we have a lot of pretty good coaches. I think the other two things that are really important is the shoe technology has gotten better and better, and that makes a difference. And then also you're seeing in high school um, races where uh, they are set up for fast times are kind of more like the pros. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, a couple decades ago, I mean, again, I can only use my experience, but when I was in high school or even when I was coaching high school kids, like there were no races like that. Like I, I didn't have a single race where I was rabbited to run under four. It was like me leading doing it or once in the pre-classic where I was, you know, well beyond behind the rabbit because he was going like sub 350 pace. So I was just hanging on for dear life. Um, so you're seeing more races where it's like, OK, let's get people together, set it up and and give people a shot, which I think is great. And I think that allows more people to run fast and have the opportunity to do so. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you feel like um, with the four pillars, how can somebody like even from the lowest level to, you know, one of the highest levels, how can they use that to kind of maximize their training? Yeah, I think a lot of it is like, you know, from a training standpoint is we often think of training from a physiological standpoint, like how am I going to get physically better? And I think that's important. But I think also thinking about it from a psychological standpoint and thinking the the things that I focus on in practice mentally, that's where my mind is going to go in a race, right? In, in one year when I was coaching college athletes, I actually ran this experiment where during the middle of workouts, I would randomly ask the kids, like, where's your attention? What are you focused on? And then I, I did that, you know, right after races because I couldn't do it in the races because I wasn't running with them. Um, but then I compared what were their where was their attention and focus and mental game in races versus workouts. And often in races, they were honed in and focused and like all this stuff. But in practice, they were just kind of getting through the workout. So they were thinking about like the homework they had to complete or like, you know, thinking about, you know, whatever the dinner they were going to have with Johnny and Susie, whatever it was. So they would like distract themselves to a way, way higher degree. So to me, it told me like, well, all we're practicing in, in workouts is how to distract ourselves and get through things. In races, you're not going to just distract yourself. You're going to need other tools. Mm -hmm. So to me, even in, in training, it's using these pillars, especially like, you know, um, how, to, how to navigate some of these things and zoom in and zoom out. Use them in, in training so that you're sharpening that mental muscle so that when it comes to race time, you're ready to go. Awesome. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I wanted to go back to kind of the Kyle's last question. Um, 
Do you think the training science has gotten that much better um, or is just kind of the floor of the coaching? Like you mentioned, there's a lot more good coaches. Did we just kind of raise the floor? So like, do we know more about training and how to do that successfully? Or do we just have more people who know the same amount of good stuff that we knew before? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's another interesting question. I think for sure we have raised the floor, as I mentioned, where we have a, a, a lot more good people who know it. I think on the highest level, I think we do know more, but where we're playing is in the in the edges. So, uh, you know, to give you an example, if we go back, I don't know, all the way back to Arthur Lydiard's time and Bill Bowerman and all those guys, they were playing at the extremes. They were trying to decide... Do we do intervals, you know, five, six days a week, like Jim Ryan and, and Emil Zatopek? Or do we run, you know, 100 miles a week for like six months straight and then start intervals like Lydiard? Like oh. it was very polarized, right? And I think now we're, we all agree on the, the basic foundations of training. Like you got to have a nice aerobic foundation. You got to do some tempos or threshold workouts. You got to run fast every once in a while in the right dose. But now we're o arguing over the minutia, like how many, how much interval should we do? When should we start them? You know, how long of threshold should we do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think we're getting better at figuring out those details. So I think in a way, like we're a little bit better, but I don't think we're gonna get those like massive jumps like we maybe did when we were kind of going from like a complete change in, in training philosophy. I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think it means that we're now playing in the final, you know, 10% instead of playing in the first 90% that matters. Yeah, that makes sense. And then kind of diving into that 10%, um, did you read this kind of debate um, in in like December or January about polarized versus pyram pyramidal training. Yes, um, I did. Do you can you kind of briefly just touch on the difference between those and then your thoughts on if one is better than the other? Yeah, so I think it's kind of a a false dichotomy actually. I think okay. it's like a um, it's like a uh, a a thing that science scientists decided to argue about. Uh -huh. Because they need some way to uh, classify training, essentially. But if you look at the at the real world, you know what happens is we we use a little bit of both. No one uses a straight polarized model, and I love St Stephen Seidler's work. But no one is doing like eighty twenty exactly, right? Mm -hmm. Or whatever combination you want to put in there. Is we shift and change. Um, based on the you know time of the year et cetera, et cetera. in most programs what they do is they like <laughs> you know use some combination of during the base phase maybe we're more this style during the you know specific competition phase we're maybe a little bit on this opposite style um so that's kind of how how i see it and i think the other thing that no one talks about really in terms of these polarized versus pyramidal um styles is the reason I say they're artificial is because the, they 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 break things down into uh, simple zones, mm -hmm. right? So 
for the listeners, you have like a three zone model, which zone one is like easy. Zone two is like tempo threshold and zone three is like VO two max or faster essentially. Right. For a simplified version. Well, the reality is like, we know there's a lot more nuance in training than just those three zones. So the difference between maybe training at, if I, you know, if I went up to you, Eric, and I said, Hey, I want you to do six by 800 at three K pace, or I want you to do, you know, uh, eight by 400 at mile pace or faster, you would say, well, those are two kind of different workouts, mm -hmm. right? Like 800s at 3K pace is like, yeah, the, whatever, but it's like a different kind of workout. One is the 400s are going to be very, you're going to feel that burn a yeah. lot, you know? But in the zone models, those are kind of classified in the same area. Yeah, that's true. Right? So in the same with, like, if you look at the middle zone of, like, tempo runs, well, I can tell you to run you know, four miles at five minute pace or eight miles at five forty pace. And often they'd be in the same zone. But to me, they're two workouts that give kind of different stimulus. Like mm -hmm. the one is more of a marathon pace work and one is more of, you know, getting ready for cross country maybe. So I, I think that, well, the debate is pretty interesting and I think can be helpful. I think from a real world perspective, what happens is we often kind of simplify things too much where it's like, yeah, that that's interesting to talk about. But in the real world, I'm not like staying strictly in these zones. I'm realizing the nuance between doing 200s or 400s or 800s or running 800 pace or 3K pace or 10K pace or whatever have you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know uh, in your science of running book, which I kind of use as like a coaching Bible a little bit, but uh, you talk about VO2 max not defining fitness or potential. Uh, and I guess just going off on that, uh, could you expand on that? And I mean, you touch in that book about just improved performances without changes in VO2 max. So to just, do you put more emphasis on lactate threshold work, uh, just as we've seen uh, the Ingebrigtsens seem to put a lot of emphasis on that. And obviously their results are outstanding. So I was just wondering where your stance was just from like a coaching philosophy and sports scientist. Yeah, definitely. So there's, there's uh, the thing about VO2 max is there's a couple different things is that um, I'm not saying that style of training is worthless. It has its it has its place. I mean, it often, again, kind of falls around 3K-ish type pace, which is real important, especially if you're training for a 3K. Um, but like VO2 max itself is a parameter. If we look at it, a couple different things. Is first, it um, it essentially, if you're in the club, meaning if it's high enough, it really doesn't distinguish performance between, you know, a good performer and a great performer. Mm -hmm. So if it's around, I don't know, 65, let's say, if it, or we'll just keep it simple. If it's 70 and someone else's VO2 max is 90, there is no predictive value where I can say the person with 90 is going to be faster than the person with 70. It's just, it doesn't help by itself. The other thing that is important on VO2 max is that well, it can change and improve a little bit. Once we've had a couple of years of training, it stays relatively stagnant as a value. Mm -hmm. 
Like it'll ebb and flow a little bit, but it stays relatively stagnant. It stays the same. So if it stays the same relatively, like we shouldn't, that shouldn't be the focus of attention where we say, okay, I'm going to keep trying to improve this parameter, improve this parameter. Instead, I would like to think of it as, well, this parameter might improve, but it's going to be a byproduct of the other work that I'm doing, right? And I think you're seeing that a lot with the Ingerbritsen style training, who actually kind of derived their training from another Norwegian runner, Marius Backen, who was a great 5K runner, um, who actually trained at, at, went to York High School in the U.S. for a year and, and competed there for them. But which is, uh, it has everything in the training. You're still running fast and doing quote unquote VO2 max work and all that stuff. But it has a heavier emphasis on let's continually develop this lactate threshold or high-end aerobic ability because that seems to have a better ceiling, meaning yeah. that like you it has more room for growth on on everybody. So that's kind of how I see it is like let's go for the biggest bang for our buck for most people and keep improving the thing that can continue to improve. Yeah, that makes sense. In your transition from the Oregon project to coaching at Houston, were there certain things, uh, maybe training principles um, that you decided like, okay, I'm going to use these for the athletes. These I'm going to stay away from just with, uh, your experience with, uh, yeah. and everything just in terms of that. Yeah, definitely. So Salazar's training was, I, I mean, it was relatively simple. Um, it was, you cycle through, um, I forget exact the exact order, but and it changed a little bit. But it was essentially you cycle through um, long intervals, in short tempo run, short intervals or hills, you know, long tempo run, and then you have a long run in there as well. And you just cycle on almost like two week cycles as you try and hit those over and over and over and again, and sometimes like medium intervals, et cetera. But it was like those big pillars. And you just kind of cycled through and tried to improve every one. And he was big on like repeating to try and get faster and faster. So I think there's a, there was like, well, it's interesting. And I think what I took was, well, we need to have everything in the program from, you know, and he would have athletes sprint as well, do like 60 meter excels. So and hundred meter excels. So I was like, he had everything from sprinting, every type of work up all the way up. So I kept like that model of like, well, everything needs to be in there. But I think what I went away from a little bit is like, it's impossible to repeat the same thing type of workout over and over again and expect to get better every single time at it. And then thing, I think the other thing that I, I definitely shied away from is he would often like, double up workloads and do workouts after races and like try and stack a lot of density of intense work. And that just causes younger kids and in most people, unless you have like freakish genetics to, to break down. So there's more space and in, in training as well. So there were a bunch of different things that I, you know, things, some things I took away and some things that I said, Nope, never going to do this. And that's, kind of how coaching does whether you have a good mentor or a bad one is like you kind of have to take away the things that that resonate and have value and then and then uh, leave the rest behind yeah do you think too many people both 
collegiate and recreationally kind of try to copy like like you were just talking about elite level programs yeah 100 percent because it's like a filter down it's a trickle down system um which is essentially you look at the elites and then you like water it down maybe run it a little slower and you just copy that and i think that is a big problem for a number of different reasons a elite athletes tend to have a different you know physiological parameters that you do so they might have both better speed and endurance and capabilities B, they're often more resilient in that one of the things that allow them to get to be at this level is they can handle some crazy stuff and get away with it. Um, and then C, it's, it's elite athletes is often their full-time job. Mm -hmm. So they don't have the stresses of life. And then D, which, you know, we'll just go ahead and say it is like, you also never know on elite athletes if they're like assisted by external stuff or not. And this yeah. is actually a big problem um especially uh, yeah definitely in cycling for a while probably in distance running but it was a big problem in in our theoretical of coaching where a lot of the concepts of periodization and such were taken from like east germans and soviets who were all doped up so their periodization models that looked all great they couldn't work unless you were enhanced so often that will you know change reality as well yeah that makes sense. Do you think, kind of going off of that, um, that say we have a recreational runner, um, and I mean, I think the 80-20 kind of guideline, um, I know it deviates a little bit depending on the season, overall is positive, but do you think, say, these people that run maybe two, three days a week would be better off instead of following that 80-20 principle, using most of those as as workout days and assuming they're doing like active recovery on their off days? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for a lot of people, that model would work probably a little bit better. I think the 80-20 is a good good model you know, for emphasizing easy stuff. But I think, again, we have to realize that you know, elite athletes are able to handle a higher load or volume of easy work. Um, and also the other thing is for recreational runners, their quote unquote easy stuff often isn't easy because they can't go like slow enough yeah. to make it easy. So they often end up, you know, instead of 80 to 20, they're like kind of moderate um, it, as they're easy because, you know, a lot of times elite runners who are running, I don't know, 5Ks in the low four-minute range are still running seven-minute miles on their easy days. For someone who's running a, I don't know, 5K at eight-minute pace, like, what are they going to do? Walk for the easy days? <laughs> yeah. Because that's, that's like the comparison. So again, <laughs> I think some of that gets lost in translation. And I think for sure, for some people, you'd be better off maybe, I don't know, going for a walk or cross-training or doing something that is a little bit more, you know, um, safe. Um, and then stacking some workouts on top of that. You talked about the prevalence of doping just with cycling. Um, and I know Eric and I have read uh, Matt Hart's book, When It All Cost. Um, and just how there was like Salazar having people like run up a flight of stairs and seeing if they're wheezing and saying like, oh, okay, you have asthma, like, let's get you albuterol. Um, do you think nowadays just how much are TUEs, do you think, being taken advantage of? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I don't know. I think a lot of it is uh, people will always look to cut corners and play in the gray zone. And I think that's why it's really important to surround yourself wisely because it can be very easy to fall into that gap, that gap, and then like rationalize and convince yourself that like, oh well, you know, I might have asthma, and you know, I'm passing, you know, I'm failing this test, and you don't realize, well, I'm failing it because I'm essentially cheating it. Um, so I think that happens. Uh, so I think it's it's a concerning area, and I would say it's a concerning area, especially, you know, for athletes who maybe aren't seasoned and aren't aware that some of this happens. Because, like, often, you know, coming out in your early 20s, maybe, you know, you get told by a team doctor or physician or a, a coach you respect who sends you a doctor, and you think, oh, well, the doctor is prescribing me this, so it must not be bad. And you kind of just go with it. And and that's where I think we have to have these honest conversations of not only what is blatantly crossing the red bright red line, but like what do we want sport to look like and what do we want people to have to kind of navigate ethically um in sport and I think that's where that kind of TUE gray area zone comes in because it's it's kind of shocking and I remember actually the other day I was reading a a study that showed that something like 70% of the Norwegian skiers who had won like medals at majors had asthma, had a, had a like out, uh, asthma TUA, TUA at some time, wow. which you just think about it and you're just like, well, I don't think 70% of like world-class athletes in an endurance event like skiing are going to have asthma. Some are just by based on the population and, you know, kind of odds, but I don't think 70%. So that kind of tells you again, it's like, well, that's kind of weird. Like, yeah. this seems a little sketch. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> um, and then, I mean, I know a lot of the Oregon Project stuff has been already really well documented, so I don't want to go into that too much. But from like a physical therapist perspective, I'm curious, um, are you familiar with uh, relative energy deficiency in sport? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I know in college, our coach pushed a lot of the athletes on the team to look a certain way. I know that's happened at a lot of colleges. I know in the book that Salazar did that with, with a lot of the athletes on the team. Um, do you think, I mean, I feel like the research now shows fairly, fairly well that in the long term, this is really detrimental to performance. <laughs> um, do you think it's just a a thing that the coaches don't realize that they're actually hurting their athlete? Do you think it's kind of an old school way of looking at it where they think skinnier is better? Like why, if we know now that it's detrimental to performance, why are coaches trying to still push this? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different reasons. I think, A, it's kind of that old school mentality, unfortunately. Uh, and I think, B, what happens is it is detrimental to, for performance. But sometimes athletes for a short period of time get away mm. with it and improve. Yeah. And, and that's something we have to talk about is that often and the way I kind of like to look at it is you're no, you're kind of regular, healthy size, healthy, healthy body, all this stuff. You've been training, you get a big engine, then you 
you know, have someone tell you to cut all this weight. Well, you have that same engine, mm-hmm. but your chassis is now smaller and lighter. So now you're improving a ton. But what no one tells you is that engine is going to fail yeah. sometime soon in the rest of your body because you're in the state that is unsustainable. And often I think, in unfortunately, in some of these co- college and professional um, coaching situations, is people just say, up the here and now, you're running fast, that's all that matters, who cares, we won't worry about the future. And they don't take into account the future performance and then the future of the athlete health-wise. There's been so many athletes who you can look at and, and you know tell, and some have told their stories where they experience red, red S, and then it just sends their body for this, like, chaos of like hormonal barrage where their their body just kind of doesn't function normally um and it can hurt everything from their health to bone mineral density to all these different things and i think coaches need to realize that they're playing with not only their athletes performance but their health over the long term potentially for the rest of their life and i think we really do need to like have honest conversations and hold coaches accountable because you know, I, I'm not going to name names, but even off the top of my head, I can think of, you know, several NCAA teams where it's like, you know, you watch their team year after year and people get skinnier and then where it's like, well, maybe you're OK, but like there's this is looking kind of dangerous. And I'm kind of concerned that, you know, most of the team is headed in that that direction. Mm-hmm. And like if that's the case, I don't know who, but someone needs to step in because like that that's hurting people's futures. Yeah. Do you think it's like an awareness issue? Cause I have a nutritionist that I've talked to that gets very frustrated and, um, about the whole, the whole red S, um, situation basically, rightly so. And do you think it's an issue of people not being aware of energy, low energy availability being an issue, or do you think it's more so, this coach is trying to keep their job and they don't really care about the consequences later on. I think it's the latter in a lot of the more serious cases is they're so obsessed with performance. They get stuck in on the narrow mm-hmm. and they don't, they don't care about, you know, or think about the long-term impact they have. They're just like, I'm going to keep my job. I'm on a win. This is all that matters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that's, that's unfortunate and uh, a big problem. And I think, this is why it's really important to have good role models in sport and uh, people to look up to set the right example who do things the right way. And, and that being said, I do think there's some awareness and education component for some who are just like ignorant of it and not understanding maybe the seriousness of it and thinking like, oh, well, you know, they're they may be OK, so I'm just going to let them keep doing this. While you were coaching, um, what did you do to combat burnout? Just whether that's at the collegiate level or pro, uh, and has that approach changed since you started coaching? Yeah, it definitely has. I, I think about that a lot. I think I think early on, I thought about burnout a lot in terms of their physical training. So to make sure it was balanced and to giving enough recovery and breaks and all that stuff to make sure they have it. But over time, I've thought about it more from a like psychosocial standpoint of like 
how do we keep people enjoying this activity and finding some meaning and purpose in it and like still being challenged with it and kind of like fulfilling these needs, uh, these basic psychological needs as well. So in coaching, I'm often always trying to like, you know, almost doing that check in and seeing like, well, where's this person's motivation? Is it in a good spot or a bad spot? And if that motivation shifts, then that tells me like I might need to, you know, help them, you know, find a more productive or a better internal drive. Yeah. Um, and I guess, what would you recommend for younger people with aspirations to coach at the high school or college level? There are certain like staples that like they should read, they should watch, uh, anything like that. Yeah. All I would say is read as much as you can talk to other coaches, have conversations like these. This is how you learn. Um, and, and you know what I, I, I'm a big fan of like going back and understanding the history of like the training, like go back and read Lydiard or Bowerman or, or whoever have you, um, because that once you kind of know where the training comes from and you know what we do now, you kind of understand it a little bit better and can make better decisions. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right. Well, yeah, I think that was all the questions we had. Um, I know you have going off that last question, a, a coaching kind of school that you, you do. Um, so where can people find that? Where can people find you on social media? Um, all of that stuff. Yeah, you can find all my coaching resources at uh, scienceofrunning.com. You can find me at social media, all of that at, at, at Steve Magnus. And you can find my new book, Do Hard Things, wherever wherever books are sold. So I appreciate, you know, chatting with you guys and uh, having this conversation. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you on, Steve. Yeah, thank you. Any listeners, definitely go check out his book.